X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news of democracy. It's April 3rd, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on your daily local news podcast, today's headlines, Jeff Allworth from Beervana on the impact of the coronavirus on local breweries, and Alex Zelensky from the Portland Mercury on the increased concern around mental health during COVID-19. The, the impact it's have on society to shut people in, to keep people from interacting with others, to, to cause a lot of folks to lose their jobs, um, a lot of people to make really painful layoffs of their businesses, you know, that has its own toll. First up, today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Friday, April 3rd. The Oregon Transportation Commission made its decision on Thursday, green lighting the Interstate 5 widening project in Portland's Rose Quarter. The commission unanimously agreed to avoid an environmental impact statement. Mayor Ted Wheeler, Rakaia Adams, Jessica Vega-Peterson, and a set of local leaders supported the move over the objection of environmental and climate activists demanding that environmental impact statement. The commission did indicate some interest in an alternative outcomes process that would include some restorative justice in the Albina neighborhood. Proponents of the project argue that the added freeway capacity on ramps and shoulders will ease traffic through the congested thoroughfare. Opponents respond with a research of induced demand. Areas with more highways attract more car-oriented development and more traffic. Or, remembering Ray Kinsella, if you build it, they usually come. Portland sent national ripples starting in the 1970s with the work of local activists to resist mega-highways and invest in transit-oriented development. Now activists decry the impact on asthma rates in North Portland, the impacts on the esplanade, induced demand, and the increased likelihood, even maybe inevitability, of the return of the Columbia River crossing dedicating the bulk of state transportation money to highway building for the next decade or so. The project is currently carrying a steadily rising price tag, now topping $715 million, and a projected completion of 2027. Remember that number, $715 million. It'll be fun to see where it is when it's all said and done. Meanwhile, Portland Parks and Rec has laid off a 1,000 part-time and seasonal workers, Cascade Brewing has been sold, and Travel Portland has laid off 40% of its workforce, with a significant loss in hotel and lodging businesses. Those that are laid off got two-week severance, three months of health benefits, and a payout for accrued time off. Overall, in Oregon, a record 92,700 people filed for initial claims for unemployment insurance benefits last week. That's according to the data released yesterday from the Oregon Employment Department. That dwarfs nearly 5,000 initial claims filed just two weeks before. In seven counties in southwest Washington, 13,500 people filed initial unemployment claims, most of those in Clark County. To be clear, Clark County isn't doing the worst in southwest Washington. It is the biggest county in southwest Washington. According to Department of Labor data, about 10 million Americans lost jobs in March and applied for government help. Oregon's jobless rate had been at an all-time low just last month, at 3.3%, just ahead of the crisis. Economists now widely anticipate the jobless rate to get into the double digits within the next few months, perhaps as high as 20%. And while the Employment Department is trying to add staff, there is a time lag. Employment Department currently warns laid-off Oregonians need to allow a few weeks for claims to be processed. Governor Kate Brown did confirm on Thursday that she does plan to call a special session. But she doesn't plan to convene Oregon legislators anytime soon. That's despite the fact that lawmakers have prepared for weeks on an emergency relief package for the state. 
But with a billion dollars expected in federal emergency funding, Brown said she'll hold off on calling a special session until the specifics of that aid are better understood. The Legislative Emergency Board, known as the E-Board, that's the smaller group of legislators that convenes in between full legislative sessions, has approximately $53 million of state money to spend. That's after it appropriated about $22 million in early March. That was for early coronavirus response, the new greenhouse gas regulations, and some long-term relief for flooding damage in eastern Oregon. Here's your local and regional COVID-19 status report. Oregon still has a lot of work to do before we safely shed our stay-at-home order. Here's why. Oregon health officials reported 90 new known cases of the novel coronavirus Thursday afternoon, bringing the state's total to 826. Two additional deaths were announced on Thursday. Both people had underlying medical conditions, according to OHA. The state now has 21 known deaths from the virus. The University of Washington has built an incredible data charting tool, covid19.healthdata.org. University of Washington has built a data-rich charting tool, covid19.healthdata.org. It currently projects just over 550 total coronavirus deaths in Oregon with a peak of infection in mid or early May, right around Mother's Day, and things calming into the summer. To be clear, the virus will decide, not any chart, so hold off on scheduling your mosh pits. The number of new confirmed cases in Oregon has fallen 18.6% from its peak last weekend, but that may just be because testing has dropped off this week. For a state our size, experts say we need to test between 1,900 and 3,200 people a day. Currently, Oregon is testing about 1,150 people per day. The state still needs enough ventilators, ICU beds, and PPE, personal protective equipment, to handle a worst-case scenario. Some good news, this is not nearly as bad as some scary movie. We're not staying inside to stay safe from a zombie apocalypse. We're staying inside to beat the zombie so the zombie apocalypse doesn't happen. Staying at home is a manifestation of strength and agency. This is not how we cower. This is how we win. TriMet is limiting how many people are allowed to ride at a time. Only 10 individuals are allowed to ride on a single bus or up to 15 people if they're riding as couples or with children. If a bus reaches that capacity, it won't pick up any new passengers until someone exits the bus. TriMet has said it'll try to adjust service if buses are consistently full. If you do find yourself taking public transit, Dr. Jennifer Vines, lead health officer for TriMet, said on Thursday she does not discourage Oregonians from wearing masks, although the science is not clear. According to the Washington Post, the White House is expected to urge Americans to begin wearing cloth masks or other types of face coverings. What the local has heard from health officials is that masks are particularly helpful in protecting other people. So as we saw in South Korea, if lots of people wear masks, that can have some impact, even if a mask doesn't protect your own eyes or ears. And to close with a passing, Jim Redden passed away this week. The former legislator and Oregon State Treasurer went on to appointment to the federal judiciary. Redden is perhaps best known today as the federal judge who repeatedly ordered the Bonneville Power Administration to rewrite its plans to protect the Columbia River salmon by complying with the U.S. Endangered Species Act. The story of his passing was reported by James Redden III, a journalist for the Portland Tribune. On a personal note, Jim Redden swore me into the Oregon bar. Thanks for your service, Your Honor. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Next up, Portland author Jeff Allworth talks about how local breweries are weathering the storm. The fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic sweeping through our communities has mostly been reported in numbers. 
but how has it been playing out at a more personal level? Over the past couple weeks, I've been speaking with Portland breweries scrambling to save their businesses while balancing the safety and financial well-being of their customers and employees. Their experiences have been revealing and poignant. The first blow was when the governor ordered pubs and restaurants to stop in-house service on March 16. For breweries with pubs, that cut off a critical stream of business. Alan Taylor, the founder of Zoigel House in Lentz, told me. Then came the order to shut down restaurants and bars, and then obviously draft was dead. We communicated internally multiple times a day as the situation was evolving and have come up with the next best solution we have available, which is still seriously awful. We didn't have the business to support our staff. Breweries have had to close their pubs and tap rooms for service, but some, like Southeast Portland's Gigantic Brewing, have found success selling packaged beer to go. Here's co-founder Van Havig. Sales have been good, which is exciting, he said. And by good, I mean 30 to 40% of normal sales. I have my fingers crossed that we can keep that level of sales, but I'm concerned that when this thing really hits the hospitals, people may not want to leave their homes at all. Other breweries haven't been as lucky. Adam Milne owns Northeast Portland's Old Town Brewing, which relies on a pub and restaurant for most of its sales. He has offered takeout pizza and beer, but that hasn't been enough. Eventually, he cut back business hours. That required us to have another round of layoffs, he said. Old Town went from a company with 28 employees to eight, two working per shift. Finally, I decided to take a peek at how bad pub sales had dropped since the governor's mandate. Sales were down 73%. By law, breweries are permitted to make home deliveries of beer, and breweries that have set up the infrastructure to do so have been pleasantly surprised. Ben Parsons, co-founder of Berlick Brewing in Southeast Portland, described their experience. We are overwhelmed at the response, he said. Because of solid sales, we have been able to put people back to work to meet demand. We've also instituted a very rigid social distancing plan in our operations and with our staff that we are evolving daily to create as little risk as possible. The stress is unreal in that I won't know if any of the decisions I'm making right now are the right ones until all of this is over with. The Oregon Brewers Guild has been a huge asset to these brewers who don't have the time or bandwidth to investigate recently passed federal legislation or other supportive government programs. The Guild has been providing information to breweries to help brewers navigate the thicket of laws. And within this turmoil, breweries have been encouraged by the response from Portlanders. In one heartening story, Gigantic's Havoc described what happened when he directed people to the Oregon Food Bank rather than accepting tips. About 15 minutes after a delivery, I got a text with a photo of a donation screen for the Oregon Food Bank, and that person had donated $50. About 10 stops later, I dropped off beer to a return customer who'd tried to tip. When he saw me, he mentioned that he had donated $20 as a result, and then posted on Facebook about how he thought that was cool that I had suggested that. His friends donated another $60. For X-Ray FM, I'm Jeff Allworth. Updates and in-depth interviews are available at BeerVanaBlog.com and also on the BeerVana podcast available at xraypod.com and on air at X-Ray. Up next, Alex Zielinski of the Portland Mercury about the increases in mental health concerns due to COVID-19. Let's start with some reporting you have done on mental health and Portland clinicians, excuse me, Portland clinicians preparing for an uptick in mental health crises. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last week, early last week, we heard from the um, Portland Police Bureau that the, there'd been a 
42, I think, percent increase in uh, calls related to suicide and suicide ideation coming in um, compared to the same time in 2019. Uh, and that was in the, the period, the three-week period kind of, um, or the two-week period uh, after the, the coronavirus kind of hit land in, in Portland or in Oregon. And, um, you know, that's a concerning number to hear. It was interesting because I followed up with a, a number of different mental health clinicians and, and folks who work on those kind of crisis lines, uh, mental health crisis lines. And to them, you know, this is expected, um, especially folks who who worked in, you know, 2008 during the very large economic uh, crash where a lot of people also lost their jobs. Obviously, this is different. There's different layers. Um, but that increase in, um, you know, people being in uh, a mental health crisis because of job loss, because of just uncertainty and anxiety um, about what's going on in the world right now and not really hearing, not really knowing when there's kind of an end in sight. Um, you know, a lot of folks I spoke with, clinicians I spoke with said that that is such a kind of trigger point for a lot of people to, to make the decision whether or not they want to, um, you know, want to end their own lives. And so they're, uh, yeah, so, so a lot of these, uh, these operators working on these phone lines and, um, you know, there's, there's online chat as well, are really ramping up their efforts and really trying to prepare as much as possible for the potential um, continuous uh, upswell of, of mental health crises and calls from folks who are really struggling right now. Um, I, you know, this was last week, and a lot of a lot of the, the people I spoke with said that you know this is it's almost too early. This is just the beginning. Um, they expect that once kind of the, the triage feeling of handling what's going on nationally and globally with this pandemic and locally, after that period passes, things start settling down, but things still seem pretty dire and people still can't pay their pay their rent or they you know don't know about the health of their their family members and they still can't visit them there's there's going to be a um a kind of aftershock that lasts for a while of folks still struggling to um get stability both in their their mental and you know uh, economic <laughs> um parts of their lives and so yeah it's it's um Definitely kind of a unex not unexpected, but not, you know, this is such a physical, um, the, the coronavirus, you know, we know all the symptoms, we know how physically it hurts someone, um, but the state of um, the, the, the impact it's had on society to shut people in, to keep people from interacting with others, to, to cause a lot of folks to lose their jobs, um, a lot of people to make really painful layoffs of their businesses, you know, that has its own toll in ways that are not um, just, you know, uh, it can't be solved in, in uh, um, a hospital room. So that's kind of the... So let me um, go back to yeah. the, uh, go back to the data. 911 calls, you were saying 911 calls involving suicide attempts or suicide threats. Mm-hmm. Say again, the uptick that we've seen? Yeah, the uptick, um, 41%. Uh, in the past few weeks compared to the same time period in 2019. And then it was up, that's that 
the, the amount of calls um, were also up 23% from the 10-day period prior to March 12th, which is when um, kind of the crisis, or at least locally, um, that the mayor declared a state of emergency and things really started changing. And then to imagine, as we try to project ourselves forward, as we think about the various causes, and it can be hard, right, because we don't have data on each and every call, but we can speculate on rationale from uh, money insecurity to grief to fear to uh, to actual displacement. I mean, there's a number of, uh, to maybe boredom. Mm-hmm. What are the, do we have any information on what, the most important militating causes are to help us understand either how to deal with it or how it might soften or worsen? Um, the, I mean, dealing with it, at least a lot of the advice that we're getting or that I've heard from people, um, you know, mental health clinicians and people working in these, uh, these crisis lines is making sure it's preventative, right? It's not, let's wait until there's a crisis and then deal with it. It's, um, checking in with your friends um, before something happens, before, you know, maybe they, they hit a point where they're, um, you know, in crisis. It's uh, reaching out to people when you're feeling really isolated, um, you know, and and uh, being able to, if, if you don't feel incredibly isolated, maybe you're staying at home and you have your family and you have, you know, maybe a partner or roommate, um, you don't really know what it feels like to to be completely isolated right now and especially if you know folks who already have mental health kind of history or have any kind of uh, um, you know mental health illness in their family or or not you know this is a time when people um you know those uh, mental illnesses kind of pop up for the first time or you start feeling anxiety that you haven't felt before or depression that you haven't felt before um uh, one clinician i spoke with says you know during times like these during especially economic shaky times they get calls first time calls a lot of times from people who've never considered um that they had any kind of mental health issues and so uh a lot of it is is fighting the isolation of it all and remembering that there's a bunch of other humans out there who could um help you or that you could support uh from afar obviously not not in person right now um, no, loneliness. It's one of the big reasons. Frank, it's one of the big reasons I'm so glad to be able to be talking to you. The reasons we're still doing this is just loneliness. Yeah, yeah. People want to hear human voices. We want to know that things are still going. I mean, it's interesting. I spoke to this OHSU professor, uh, epidemiologist, I think. Yes. And um, But kind of with a psychiatry background, and he was saying how, um, you know, uh, while it's really important that the media and that we're, you know, elected officials are, are really talking seriously about, hey, we don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know what, what the economy or society is going to look like in, in a few weeks, let alone a few months, that that lack of control kind of, um, that I guess is seen really, you know, people who um, are deeply depressed and decide or, or you know, have, have some kind of serious mental illness and, and decide to take their own lives. I mean, a lot of that is because they feel like there's a lack of control in their own life. And to see leaders talking about, we have no idea, we have no control over what's going on. Um, there's no like 
point in the future that we can be certain about right now. Um, he was saying how, how that's, he's kind of worried that that is reflected back onto people who are like, okay, screw it, nothing. There's no control over anything in the world. No one knows what they're doing. Um, like, and in some cases, the only way to take back that control is to, to take your own life. And so, um, I mean, this is dark, but this is also just a really interesting way to, to talk about the way that we cover crises um, and the way that even elected officials talk about crises. Yeah, what does it tell for, for someone for someone in your position, heck, someone in my position, maybe somebody like the various elected leaders we are now talking to on an almost daily basis, mm-hmm. what, what lessons does it send to us? What should we be doing differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, um, it's just a reminder to, to even if we feel um, when we're covering news and when we're talking about what's going on, the, the severity and the seriousness of it, um, even if we have, feel like there's, there's some hope and there's something at the, the end of this, we just don't reflect it in our stories and in our, the way that we talk about it. It's important to include um, some kind of understanding of like, hey, uh, this is what people are expecting things to change will look like down, you know, in the future. This is maybe a, a, a silver lining. Here's someone who maybe recovered from coronavirus. Here's something um, doing a little bit more than usual to instill some um, stability in both the future and in both, um, you know, understanding this really unknown virus right now. Um, but it's tricky, right? Because you know, our, our our job is not to cheer folks up and and to soften really serious news. But um, but I think the idea not of just uh, you know writing fluff pieces, but of of saying, hey, here's um, you know, right now it feels really weird and unstable. Here's like a, you know. Um, hypothetical about what might happen. These are what you know economists are saying. This is what you know officials are saying about a year down the road. There's some. There's going to be some point when things open up again. There's going to be a point when um, things kind of revert back to whatever a new normal is. Um, but this isn't just a big question mark, even though it might feel like it. And there are beautiful things out there. There are be- beautiful, wonderful yeah. people doing beautiful, wonderful things every single day. Yeah, and that's what we at the Mercury are um, are trying to do and trying to promote on our website right now. I mean, our news team is kind of focusing a lot on on the classic uh, news of the day, but we have our uh, other folks in editorial putting together really like fun, uplifting um, blogs and. Just, I mean, we have this great new, I'm just, you know, this is a shameless plug, but we have this great new uh, online column that's just kind of like weird crafts and strange creative things people are um, picking up and doing while uh, quarantined, including this great photo shoot with someone's cat. Um, and uh, and just reminding, reminding, I don't know, our readers that, yeah, there is some joy and there's a lot of creativity that's going on in... Um, in the midst of this kind of unknown crisis. Your plug merits no shame. Alex Zelensky, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the work that you are doing. Stay safe out there. Thank you. Thanks for me on. Thanks to Jeff Allworth and Alex Zelensky for sharing their time. And thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks to you. It's already growing. Please do share with others. Five-star reviews really help. We would also love your feedback and story ideas. You can send them to us at the local at xray.fm. 
big thanks to our production team. Editor Will Romy, who works the magic from afar to make sure this comes in piping hot first thing in the morning. Writers Jeff Allworth, Emily Gilliland, Kate Kay, Eric Klein, Julie Oppenheimer, Joy Palchuk, Miranda Selinger, and Jamie Zangwill. Thanks to news partners like Bridgeliner and the Portland Mercury, and all the reporters out there at the Oregonian, at the Willamette Week, at the Portland Tribune, at the Business Journal, all the folks whose news we read to try to bring it to you. I'm Jefferson Smith. Stay home, stay connected. Thanks, everybody, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday.